didn't bring yours this morning, there should be one in front of you in the pew. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 35, the second half of verse 35, part B, as a matter of fact, that's where we're going to pick up. While you're looking for that, there's a story of a pastor who took a missionary trip to the Far East, where it spoke to some people who were teaching English in China. And one part of that journey, they took a side trip to a small village just across the border in China to visit some missionary friends. And through an interpreter, they chatted with two brave young Chinese women who each week risked imprisonment or worse by traveling into China to minister to others. The pastor asked them if they had ever heard of a false teaching that has plagued American churches called the health and wealth and prosperity gospel. Had they ever heard of such a thing? This is the teaching that it's God's will for his children to be healed of every disease and that all of God's children should be wealthy. If you lack those things, it's because you lack faith. So this false teaching teaches. One of the women laughed softly when she heard this and she shook her head and said, no, I don't think that any Chinese Christian would ever believe that. Chinese Christians knew that following Jesus Christ is more likely the path to hardship and persecution than it is to health and wealth and prosperity. How do they know that? Because that's the life they have lived. That's the only life they understand as a Christian. They're not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. They're persecuted for their faith day and night, even uh, thrown in prison or tortured and killed. But we live in a society where everything seems to be geared towards success. Even the church today, my friends, has acquired the success syndrome. And over the last couple of days in this uh, couple of decades in our country, We've grown accustomed to hearing the concept that true faith is always evidenced by some sort of tangible success. So in other words, no matter if a, if a church is really successful, then it's very, it's very much filled with lots and lots of people. Or if you have a very strong faith, God always rewards that in some way financially for you or a lack of trials in your life or a lack of suffering in your life somehow. Proponents of what has come to be known as the health and wealth and prosperity gospel have built television empires selling this idea. That unless you're healthy and wealthy, you're just not living up to your potential. You're not the best version of you that God wants you to be somehow. Anything less than some sort of tangible success that leads to your comfort and prosperity in life is shamed as some sort of defective faith on your part. So any failures, any illnesses, any tragedies are ruled to be outside the will of God and beneath the dignity of a Christian, or so this false teaching propagates. But is that really what the Bible teaches about faith? No. In fact... To believe this false gospel about faith is to ignore the principle that there's a big difference between spiritual success and material success, if you will, if we want to use that word success. 
There's a difference between what is being deemed a success by the world and what God would say is a successful faith. Success by God's standard really has nothing or little to do with your financial standing or monetary success. God doesn't judge you, doesn't look at your faith by your bank account. He doesn't judge your faith by what kind of car you're driving or what kind of house you live in or what kind of clothes you're wearing. Success by God's standard does not mean that you'll never encounter trials or that you'll never suffer or that you'll never have difficulties or tribulations in your life at all. Contrary to the prosperity gospel, biblical success is rooted deeply in one thing, and that is your enduring faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Whether God in his sovereign will determines that you encounter many trials or limited trials or no trials, whether you have strong financial resources or limited financial resources or no financial resources, whether you constantly suffer or only face limited suffering, it is by faith, enduring faith, that we endure every trial and tribulation. Now, last time that we were together and looked in the book of Hebrews, it seemed like a long time ago, doesn't it? But when we did, we looked at verses 32 to 35a. So let's just refresh our memory quickly, shall we, on those verses as we dig in here this morning. The author of Hebrews writes, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. So the author here speaks of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. And we saw last time that by faith, God even uses us to accomplish his will. In all of our brokenness, just to think that we're just the mere thought that we might think we're something special. He even uses us. Despite all the different things that God could use, he uses us these broken clay pots who constantly rebel, who often willfully sin against him. It is us that he uses. That's not to our glory. That's to his glory, beloved, to his glory. So he speaks of these. Remember Gideon, he was the first listed in this powerful example. Remember uh, the success? He had 300 select men routed the Midianite army with nothing more than torches and empty jugs. Do you remember that? That's in Judges chapter 7. And then Barak, when the judges ruled Israel, was a military leader along with Deborah. And they led Israel to defeat Sisera and the Canaanites. And that's uh, in Judges chapter 4. Samson, usually remembered for his great strength, not his faith. But in spite of his weaknesses, he was a great champion of Israel during the period of the Philistine oppression in Judges chapter 13. And Jephthah, often remembered for his foolish vow, he placed his faith in God and relied on that power to overcome the Ammonites, again, who were much further technically advanced with weaponry than Israel. 
David, a man who could and did make some very tragic mistakes, was first and foremost a man of faith. He was a man God called a man after God's own heart and because of his faith and his desire to do God's will. The one thing that each of these men had in common is they all had defects in their faith. That's the point. God God, uh, uh, blessed them, if you will, with this tremendous success, things that are beyond comprehension because of their faith. But they were also deeply flawed in their faith. Gideon was slow to take up arms, asking for a sign and another sign and another sign before he would move. Barak hesitated and went forward, only when Deborah encouraged him. Samson was enticed by Delilah. Jephthah made a foolish vow and then stubbornly kept it. And although their faith was less than perfect, it did not keep them from being used by God in a very powerful way. Lastly, then he names the prophets, who remain unnamed except for Samuel, and each of them served God courageously. And they confidently accepted God's commands and faced whatever opposition came along. Then in verses 33 to 35, which we just read, he details some of the things they did. Look at all of that. Many examples of groups who became valiant in battle and turned Israel's armies, uh, turned them to flight. But if the faith of God's people could boast of these spectacular achievements, when you read verses 33 to 35, you think there's victory. There's victory in faith. Look at the incredible things that God has done. Miraculous military victories. Incredible uh, instances of deliverance. The raising of dead to life. But the author's point here, and what he doesn't want you to miss, is that there's something also that is no less inspiring than all of those success stories. And that's all of those who maintain their faith on the other side of the equation. Those who suffered horribly and endured in their faith. He wants to show you both sides here. It's no less inspiring than the willing endurance by others of horrible torture and even a cruel death. And that's what we want to look at this morning in this chapter as we round out and finish chapter 11. We want to look at those who did not have these spectacular victories by the world's standards. They didn't have these miraculous healings, but nonetheless, they are listed here in Hebrews chapter 11, right alongside those who had these incredible victories. They're here in the hall of faith with all the other success stories because God wants to make a point. He wants to make a point that we shouldn't judge well our faith by worldly standards. He wants to make a point here that whether God blesses you with these incredible things and works through you in a very mighty way, or whether God calls upon you to suffer for an extended period of time, it is your enduring faith in both instances that will bring God glory. What's so spectacular about their faith that it warrants a mention in this chapter along with all these great victories, these incredible healings and deliverance? What does it say about how God views our faith and success compared to those in the prosperity gospel? who measure everything by your tangible success, those things visible in your life. And lastly, what are the key components of this faith that we are called to emulate today? That's what we want to look at. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Ask him to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for these dear saints that you've gathered here today. I pray, Lord, you'd give us open hearts and open minds, open ears to your truth. And then, Lord, as we as we sit here today, Lord, maybe we're in the group where God has just incredibly blessed us by his grace. And we've not encountered lots of suffering or trials. But, Father, there may be another brother or sister right down the aisle from us who is facing something beyond their control, who's suffering. Maybe they've been suffering for a long time. Maybe it's physical pain. Maybe it's emotional pain. Maybe it's spiritual separation from you, Lord. There's something going on in all of us here, and you know exactly what it is. So, Lord, as we listen today for the other side of the equation, may our faith be encouraged today. And may we be prompted to encourage others, regardless of where they are on these two lists. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look, shall we, at the second half of verse 35 and verse 36. The first part, remember, was women received back their dead by resurrection. And others, this word others, remember there are two words for others in the Greek language. There's alos, another of the same kind. Then there's heteros, another of a different kind. So here he says uh, uh, women received back their dead by resurrection. And others, these are others of the same kind. These are people who had strong faith also. Others were tortured not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. So in verses, if if verses 33 to 35a sound like a dream, when you read verses 35b and 35.6, I mean, in 36, you're like, well, that must be the nightmare, right? One of them, we have miraculous delivery. We have these incredible healings. We have even raising the dead. And here you got torture, Mocking, scourgings. Look at look at our list here. Women received back the dead. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. I think many of us today would probably identify more with this group than we do the first group when we read Hebrews chapter 11. We can often feel that we're living in the nightmare side of this rather than the dream. We don't seem to be conquering any kingdoms, and pain and suffering seems to be having their way with us. What distinguishes the people in the first half with the people in the second half of our text? Let me tell you this. In most cases, nothing at all. Nothing. In fact, some of the same people are listed in both halves of our text. They saw wonderful victories, and other times they endured terrible defeats. The people in both parts, though, are characterized later in verse 39 that all these, that's everybody that we talked about, those on the list where everything was going swimmingly and those on the list where nothing was going well, all these, they said, had faith. So our text tells us that these others had faith too, but God did not see fit to deal with them in the same way he dwelt with those who experienced victory. I should give you your first point before I move on here. Thank you. Faith is ready to sacrifice present comfort for future reward with Christ. 
Faith is ready to sacrifice present comfort for future reward with Christ. So our text tells us that these others had faith too, but God, again, didn't see fit to deal with them in the same way he dealt with the first group who experienced these wonderful victories. Instead of miraculous uh, deliverance and fantastic victories, what does their list tell them about them? What did they experience? Mockings, scourging, chains, and imprisonment. I can think of one who went through just about everything on this list. That would be Jeremiah. If you've read the book of Jeremiah, it'd be very famous. He went through almost every one of these here. Tortured, chained, imprisoned, thrown in a pit in uh, Jeremiah 38, scourged, beat, imprisoned. Kind of sums up Jeremiah's life. But he also had victories. Surely there were others. Joseph, Genesis 39, Micaiah, 1 Kings 22, Elisha, 2 Kings 2, Hanani, 2 Chronicles 16, to name but a few. Terrible things. They, they, incurred, they, uh, they went through all of these things or most of these things. Note that the text tells us, though, I don't want you to miss this here. In the second part of verse 35, note it says this. It's kind of a weird statement or strange statement that they might obtain a better resurrection. Do you see that there? Not accepting their release so they might obtain a better resurrection. How can the death of a martyr be a better resurrection? Better than what? Well, the answer is in remembering the previous context of verse 35, where it just said that the women received their dead raised to life again. Who is that speaking to? Well, it's probably referring to the widow of Zarephath or the Shunammite woman, right, who had their sons raised from the dead. Both saw their sons who were restored to life by Elijah and Elisha. But in due course, what happened to their sons? They died again, didn't they? They died again. The resurrection that these dear saints aspire to in our text today was not a resurrection to die again, but a resurrection to eternal life. Now, that description of some of those being tortured and not accepting their release, we think refers to two incidents during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay? Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the Roman uh, emperor, if you will, during the time of the Maccabees, which was the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the first, we had an old teacher of the law named Eleazar, who was forced to open his mouth to eat pork, which, do you know, to a Jew would be against God's law, right? Be ceremonially unclean. But preferring an honorable death to an unclean life, he spit it out. They then stretched him on a rack and flogged him. That's what that word tortured means. They stretched him on a rack and flogged him. And at one point, they offered that he could eat clean meat if he would just pretend that it was pork and not spit it out so that the other people thought he was eating pork. And Eliezer replied, just send me to my grave quickly. If I went through this pretense at my time of life, Many of the young people might believe that at the age of 90, Eleazar had turned to apostate. In other words, he had fallen away from the truth. He said, if I practice deceit for the sake of one brief moment of life, I should lead them astray and bring stain and pollution on my old age. 
I might for the present avoid man's punishment, but alive or dead, I will never escape from the hand of the Almighty God. So they offered him a release. Hey, listen, we can stop this beating at any time if you just pretend to be eating pork. He said, no. No, it's not worth it to me. In another instant, seven sons of one woman were tortured and killed in front of her for refusing to eat pork as well. My friends, faith recognizes that life is very short in comparison with eternity. Remember what Paul says? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What did Paul consider light affliction? Beatings, imprisonment, being stoned to death, shipwrecked, often being in danger of death. He, He describes it for us in 2 Corinthians 11. That's what he considered momentary light affliction. Beloved, when you experience light affliction, do you grumble and complain? Or do you joyfully trust God? Do you trust that your present day sufferings are temporary in light of eternity? Do we trust that through these afflictions, through this suffering, that eternal rewards are being stored for us in heaven someday? Are you willing to sacrifice your present comfort for a future reward with Christ? In other words, as you look at your life right now, whatever you're going through, And here are your two options. We can take away all the pain, all the suffering, all the loss, all the tragedy, all the trials, all the tribulations. You just got to denounce Christ. That's your choice. Are you willing to sacrifice eternal glory for temporary comfort? That's what... That's what is being pointed out here. See, they weren't willing to do that. Even when they said, hey, listen, all you got to do is pretend to do this. Just pretend to violate God's law. Just just pretend like you you don't love the Lord. Just pretend like you're not willing to die for your faith. Just do it. You don't even have to do it. We'll do that. They said, no. No, I'd rather go through the suffering. I'd I'd rather die first than walk away from my faith. It wasn't easy, but each of them demonstrated enduring faith that carried them through to the eternal riches, which incidentally they are now enjoying in Christ at this very moment. Let's look at verses 37 and 38. He, He gives us some more examples. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Point number two, faith trusts and obeys God, leaving the results to his sovereignty. Faith trusts and obeys God, leaving the results to his sovereignty. With one exception, many names could fit into these various categories in these verses. The one exception is the one where it says sawn in two, which is not in the Bible. 
But tradition says that the wicked king Manasseh killed Isaiah when he was hiding in a tree from the king and sawed him in half. Notice also they were stoned. That that happened to Jeremiah, according to tradition, and also to Zechariah, the prophet and priest. You might have they were tested or they were tempted in your text. You may not have that at all in there, depending on your translation. I think they were tested is probably a little better translation than they were tempted. They were tested to do what? Incidentally, in the Greek, tested and tempted are the same word in Greek. They were tested to do what? They were pressured to deny their God, which they would not do with the promise that the persecution would just stop. It was also common that wealth and honor would be offered to them if they would just deny their faith. Notice also they were, these are the ones, these aren't the triumphant ones on a human level because it tells us they were put to death with the sword. So the world would look at that and say, they lost, right? They're dead. Sheepskins and goatskins were some of the dress of some of the prophets, but the author of Hebrews here is really, uh, is pointing to something different. They were dressed that way in goatskins and sheepskins. Why? Because they were destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. In other words, they were were destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated by whom? By their own countrymen. The very ones whom God had sent them to minister to are the ones that have made them destitute and afflicted and ill-treated. And then probably the most painful statement that's made in this entire chapter is in the parentheses of verse 38. John MacArthur writes, it really should probably be in italics. These are people of whom the world was not worthy. The world was not worthy. The world thought these men and women were unworthy to be in the world. They were deemed unworthy to live, unworthy to be comfortable, unworthy to be approved, unworthy to be affirmed, unworthy to be respected. The world deemed them unworthy to be left alone. The world felt somehow diminished by their presence, but the truth is is that the world according to God, was not worthy of them. Why did they do this? Why did they take such an unyielding stand for God and then be treated so horribly? Why did they do that? They did it because they believed what they believed in was a future waiting for them, a better resurrection. And incidentally, my friends, That's the hope of all of us who die in Christ as well. Christ, the hope of glory. That's our hope too. The writer of Hebrews in these verses, verses 36, 38, records the fact that many unknown men and women of faith were not delivered from difficult circumstances, yet God honors their faith here. In fact, I will tell you it takes more faith to endure than it does to escape. Like Daniel's three friends, remember from Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said, we are going to trust God and obey God. Even if he doesn't deliver us, it will not change what we're going to do. Man's views of these heroes of faith was low. 
So men persecuted them and arrested them and tortured them and in some cases killed them. But God's view of these people who were being suffered, or who are suffering, who are being scourged and mocked and sawn in two, God's view of them is completely different. He said the world was not worthy of them. I think the Apostle Paul is a good illustration of this truth. Remember in Acts 26 when Festus said, Paul, you're out of your mind. The Jews told Paul in Acts 22 he wasn't fit to live. Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 4 that he was treated like the garbage of the world, the filth of the world. And yet Paul was God's chosen vessel to carry the message of salvation to Gentiles. The world despised Paul, but yet that's who God chose to carry the gospel message to the Gentiles. Faith enables us to turn from the approval of the world and seek only the approval of God. The saints mentioned in our text, my friends, could endure these mockings and scourgings and imprisonment and death because their focus was on God, not on things of the world, not on people, not on things, not on status. John Calvin put it this way, we ought to live only so as to live to God. And as soon as we're not permitted to live to God, we ought willingly and not reluctantly meet death. In other words, we should live our lives with our total focus on God. And when we get to that point where we can neither worship him nor serve him, we should welcome that God is about to call us home. Some trust and obey God and he grants them spectacular results. Other trust and obey God, the same God, and he enables them to endure horrific trials in his strength. My friends, the difference is not in the people or in their faith, but in God's sovereign purpose in each situation. We know the same God that these Old Testament saints knew, and we have even more in that we know Christ. So we should trust him as they did, whether He chooses us to suffer or not. Whether he chooses to spare your life like he did Peter's for a while, or whether he allows a death to come as he did with the Apostle James. If God is glorified by delivering his people, he will do it. If he sees fit to be glorified by not delivering his people at that time, then he will do that. But we should never conclude that the absence of deliverance means a lack of faith on the part of God's children. That's the point he's making here. Both had enduring faith, regardless of how God used them. So point number one, faith is ready to sacrifice present comfort for future reward with Christ. Point number two, faith trusts and obeys God, leaving the results to his sovereignty. And then finally, in verse 39 and 40, we close out this chapter. And all these having gained approval through what? Their faith. Did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Point number three. By faith, we endure trials and tribulations here in turn for glory there. By faith, we endure trials and tribulations here 
in turn for glory there. Notice he says in verse 39, all these. Who are the all these? That's everybody we've been talking about here. Those who God used in miraculous ways. Those who God in his sovereignty allowed to endure horrific trials and tribulations in their life. They all gained approval or they all gained a powerful testimony. Remember, we looked at that word approval before. They all gained this powerful testimony through their faith. But notice this, none received the promise. The promise is the literal translation. What promise is he talking about? I mean, Abraham received the promise of Isaac, right? So he's not talking about any promises. Others obtained promises by faith. They experienced answers to prayers. They saw God fulfill his word on numerous occasions. So what is the promise that he's talking about? None of them received the promise which refers to Jesus Christ. They saw shadows and types of Christ from far away. But we see him clearly revealed in the New Testament, do we not? Most of them were under the old covenant. But notice, he says here, God provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. That something better is the new covenant in Christ's blood. Remember chapter 10, the old covenant with his sacrifices could not make the worshiper perfect. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. But the new covenant has sanctified us, set us apart through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. The Old Testament saints were saved, but their salvation was not complete until what? The cross and Christ shed blood. Ours is complete because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Now look at verse 40 again. Because God had provided something better for us. The reason the Old Testament saints did not fully realize the fulfillment of the promise was that God had a plan to include New Testament believers in his grand plan of salvation. That they, in verse 40, you should underline that in your Bible, that they are the Old Testament saints. The us, in verse 40, are the New Testament believers. Old Testament believers were not brought to this completeness during their lifetime because the once and for all sacrifice of Christ had not yet occurred. That does not mean that they didn't have a spiritual salvation. That does They knew God, they loved God, but their salvation was not complete yet. Actually, later in Hebrews chapter 12, it speaks of Old Testament saints, now dead whose spirits have been brought to completeness. How did that happen? Well, they're presently in heaven, and they now know that Christ's sacrifice has been made, and their spirits rest in perfect fulfillment, awaiting the resurrection of their bodies. My friends, many of the blessings of the new covenant are already being enjoyed, but both groups, Old Testament and New Testament, will find their salvation fully consummated when Christ returns in physical resurrection, as well as the other provisions of the Abrahamic covenant. We have received the promise, beloved. They look forward to Christ without seeing him. They embrace the promise. We have the real thing. To them, God spoke to the, and through the prophets. To us, he speaks through his son and through his word. To them was offered the rest of Canaan. To us is offered the rest of God. 
Their high priest was a man who died. Ours is a priest forever. Their sanctuary was on earth and even had a veil. Ours is the true sanctuary in heaven, and the veil has been rent in two. We have access to God. Theirs was the old covenant, which was do, which was uh, which is doomed to end. It served its purpose and it end and was replaced by the new covenant. Ours is the new with a heart made new by the Spirit. Theirs was the blood of bulls and goats. Ours is the blood of Jesus. Theirs was the ceremonial cleansing of the flesh. Ours is the cleansing of the heart from an evil conscience. Theirs is the worship which made nothing perfect. And ours is a worship perfected evermore. My friend, these believers died without ever having received the promise. And in spite of their empty handedness, they persevered in faith. Knowing that faith's reward is not always given now. The final outcome on earth is not the measure of victory in this race. Despite what the false teaching prosperity gospels preachers say. John Piper says this. The common feature of the faith that escapes suffering and the faith that endures suffering is this. Both of them involve believing that God himself is better than what life can give you now. That God himself is better than what death can take from you later. When you have it all, faith says God is better. And when you lose it all, faith says God is better. What does faith believe in a moment of suffering and torture? That if God loved me, he'd get me out of this? No. Faith believes that there's a kind of resurrection for believers which is better than the miracle of escape from suffering. It's better than the kind of resurrection experienced by the widow's son who returned to life to die again later. And the author's point is that the Old Testament saints were faithful through all these trials, even though they didn't receive the promise of Christ in the flesh. How much more faithful should we be on this side of the cross? We know so much more. And yet, although we have the promise of Christ, we do not yet have the full experience of the glory that is to be revealed with him in heaven. So we too anxiously wait by faith. We live by faith in God's promise as we await the final consummation when Christ returns. And we must endure whatever trials come, even persecution. How do we do that? Look in your text, Hebrews chapter 12. This is next week. Therefore, because of all this great cloud of witnesses we just went through in chapter 11, surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not, what, grow weary 
and lose heart. Beloved, enduring faithfulness to Jesus Christ counts more than anything in this life, even life itself. One of my favorite hymns is Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress. One of the lines in that hymn is, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. My friends, trust God in whatever difficult situation you face. Endure. Understand that what you're gaining eternally far, far, far surpasses whatever God in his sovereign will has decided you will endure here in this life. Whether it's no suffering or little suffering or much suffering, understand that getting through this life in a way that glorifies God is by your enduring faith in Christ. If you have that, regardless of what happens here, you are victorious in Christ. And one day you will hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Those are the words every believer wants to hear. And whether your life is filled with tremendous worldly success or no success, whether you have a bank account that's overflowing or you are are living day to day, whether you have uh, lots of trials in your life or you've been virtually trial-free the majority of your life, God is sovereign over it all. And your enduring faith in Christ is the most important thing that you need to take with you through this life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the reminder from our text that things don't always go swimmingly in this world, Lord. That we shouldn't fall prey to the false teaching that promises immediate temporal rewards based upon faith in faith, but rather our eyes should be focused on you who offers us eternal rewards based on our faith in Christ. Lord, what a world of difference that makes. Father, I pray for those in our midst here today. Lord, some may be on the first side of the equation where things are just going well. They're so blessed and so thankful. But Lord, may they also understand that that may not be their entire life. But they may too encounter trials and tribulations. May may they not sit there and think that that's all because of their own doing. As if God's sovereign hand is not involved at all. Lord, I think it is on the other side of the equation who right now, Lord, are facing uncertainty in their life, facing battles that are beyond their control where the only thing they have is their faith. Lord, your word tells us that both sides, wherever they are in your sovereign will, that the most important thing they need is enduring faith in you. So help them, Father. May we as a body come alongside wherever we are in this continuum and love one another and encourage one another and be there for one another. 
for your honor and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.